During this season of Advent, we focus upon the story of John the Baptist. I invite you to listen for God's word as it comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew. Now, when John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? Well, what then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. And so, gracious God, we come again in this season. We come to hear a word from you. So speak to us now, and quiet within us any voice but your own. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, in the past several years, there's been a renewed focus in trying to find meaning in the midst of life. Several years ago, one of our stewardship campaigns was entitled From Success to Significance. Bob Buford wrote a book a few years back entitled Halftime, and then he followed up with another book, Finishing Well. Lloyd Reed wrote one entitled From Success to Significance. And one review of that book on Amazon claims Lloyd Reed shows that if you focus on significance, using your time and talent to serve others, that's when truly meaningful success can come your way. Success is great, but significance is lasting. You've achieved a measure of success in the first half of life, and it's been a thrill, but deep in your heart you want your second half to count for something far more, something bigger than you. You want to discover where your deepest passions intersect with your greatest abilities and harness them, end quote. Frankly, that sounds uh, very similar, that last line, to a quote from Frederick Beekner, who's described vocation as the place where your greatest joy meets the world's deepest need. John the Baptist had some success in his ministry in the wilderness that success is now turning to significance. 
Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy in his mid-40s was successful. He was healthy, he was famous, he was rich, married, he had all the outward signs of success, but there were no indicators of inner fulfillment. He wrote, A strange condition of mental terror began to grow upon me. The same questions continually presented themselves to me. Why? And what afterward? My life had come to a sudden stop. I could breathe, eat, drink, sleep. Indeed, I couldn't help but doing those things. But there was no real life in me. Life had no meaning for me, he writes. George Bernard Shaw once wrote, This is the true joy of life. The being used up for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one. Being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clot of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. End quote. Being used up for a mighty purpose. It's a counterintuitive way to find joy in life, to find meaning in life. Now, economic considerations are important, and it's simply that they're not the only thing that's important. And economics cannot be the dominant or the exclusive concern in deciding what to do with our lives. Recently, one of our members gave me a copy of David Brooks' new book, The Second Mountain. And in that book, he writes, Eventually, there is no escaping the big questions. What is my best life? What do I believe in? Where do I belong? He claims that the goals of climbing the first mountain of life are normal goals that our culture endorses. To be a success, to be well thought of, to get invited into the right social circles, and to experience personal happiness. It's the normal stuff, he writes. Nice home, nice family, nice vacations, good friends, good food, and so on. But then something happens. Some people get to the top of the first mountain and they taste success and find it unsatisfying. Other people get knocked off the first mountain by some failure. Something happens to their career, their family, their reputation, the death of a child, a cancer scare, struggle with addiction. It's never too early or too late to get knocked off your first mountain, he writes. But the second mountain is different. If the first mountain is about building up the ego and defining the self, the second mountain is about shedding the ego and losing the self. If the first mountain's about acquisition, the second mountain's about contribution. You don't climb the second mountain the way you climb the first mountain. You conquer your first mountain. You identify the summit and you claw your way toward it. You are conquered by your second mountain. You surrender to some summons 
You do everything necessary to answer the call and address the problem or the injustice that's in front of you. On the first mountain, you tend to be ambitious and strategic and independent. On the second mountain, you tend to be relational and intimate and relentless. That brings me to John the Baptist. Relentless. He'd achieved amazing success in the wilderness. People came from all over the region to hear him, to be baptized by him in the Jordan. As I said last week, he was writing a new social contract, but now we find John the Baptist uncertain, conquered, weary, in prison. Are you the one? John asks of Jesus. Now there's a question we're all familiar with. Anyone who has fallen in love has probably asked that question, if only silently to themselves. Are you the one? The one to whom I'll give my heart? Are you the one who is meant for me? Are you the one who can fill the emptiness and the loneliness within me? The one who can complete and fulfill me? Bring color into my life. On a very fundamental level, we've been made for relationships and we know that. And so we ask ourselves when we find ourselves attracted to another, is he the one or is she the one? John was asking the question after already being convinced that Jesus was the one. He was the one who had come from God. He was bringing a new day and a new hope, a new way of life, God's promised future. And John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River and he saw the dove descend upon him from above. And now he's beginning to wonder, Jesus didn't live up to his expectations. John the Baptist once was so sure Jesus was the one, he even said he was unfit to tie his sandals. Sometimes people don't live up to our expectations of them. It's true for spouses, it's true for parents. It's even true for pastors. Sometimes God doesn't live up to our expectations either. Life unfolds in unexpected ways. You wonder, what is going on? Is anyone in charge? And it raises questions about God's providence and sovereignty. You begin to wonder whether Jesus is actually capable of handling the problems. If you've ever gotten knocked off that first mountain, you know what John is feeling. John the Baptist wondered, sitting in jail, thanks to Herod, things were not turning out like he imagined they would, He's the herald of God, the prophet, come to prepare the way of the Lord. 
Why is he now suffering at the hands of a system and of powerful people that clearly opposes God's plan? Sometimes the answer, well, God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. After all, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways, says the Lord. Jesus just didn't sound like the kind of Savior John expected. The book of Malachi ends with Elijah returning before that great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and Jesus is simply not living up to expectations. He was supposed to set the captives free. Why is John sitting in prison? Sometimes... Even the most faithful among us doubt. Sometimes the experience of life just calls into question the faith that we believe in and proclaim. And the evidence does not always add up to the conclusion that God is in control. But there's a deeper mystery at work in the world. And the message of this passage seems to be Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and trust what you see there. Imagine just for a moment that all of humankind is represented as some kind of a mountain climber making his or her way up the face of a mountain like El Capitan in Yosemite. Though dangerous, sometimes we have good handholds and we have secure places for our feet, and we make progress up that mountain of life. At other times, we find ourselves in precarious positions without secure handholds and at risk of falling. Now imagine yourself on that face, hanging on for dear life, needing someone to rescue you, and you hear a voice from somewhere above you saying, Here, take my hand. I'll pull you up. Well, if it's me, when I look up, I better see somebody up there that looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Strong and mighty to save. Capable of pulling my 225 plus pounds of weight to safety. You need to know whoever's going to save you has the capacity and the capability and the inclination and the determination you don't entrust your life into the hands of someone who's unequal to the task. And before you're willing to let go of whatever it is you're clinging to for security, you have to ask yourself the question, are you the one? Are you capable of this? Are you the one who can save me from this predicament? Are you the one God has sent? to get us out of this mess that we're in? Because sometimes you just don't seem like you're strong enough to accomplish all of that. See, the greatest gift this Christmas is that God comes to us in this unexpected and this surprising package of a child 
born in an obscure place to unsuspecting parents, they're not royalty. This isn't like the birth of Prince George to Kate and William or Archie to Harry and Meghan Markle in England. The birth of Christ reveals the vulnerability of God's incarnation. There's nothing so helpless or so fragile as a baby. And there is no other religion so bold to admit the possibility of its God appearing in such a vulnerable form. At Christmas, we're talking about the claim that a child makes upon us. I don't know about you, but a child always gets a response from me that certainly demands commitment. There's something deeply human that tells us that babies come as a sign of our best creativity, our great, greatest partnership in the ongoing challenge of life. And babies are a hopeful sign that the future is still open and the future can change. Anyone finds it difficult to be neutral in the face of that smiling mystery of a baby. One church member explained it to me this way. He had interpreted and kept his marriage vows rather loosely. He thought a little about the past. He was much more worried about the future. In the first five years of his marriage, he spent mainly on the road making a career and money. But one night I got turned around, he said. That night I walked into the hospital room and I held my little baby in my arms for the first time and I realized she was a part of me, even if she was better than I deserved. And I said to myself, you're going to have to stop your foolishness and start living like someone because she is someone. The birth of that child brought out that man's humanity. And the child took hold of his life in a way that could only be called some kind of rebirth. John the Baptist was looking for the glory of God in a different way than it came. When you realize that God comes to us in this helpless infant with nowhere to lay his head, and nails through his hands and feet. There you find all the God you can handle. Nothing less than that. All I know of God, I have seen in Jesus. And when I celebrate the day of his birth, I celebrate the day when God made himself so clear that men and women and boys and girls, that all of us have not been able to get away from him since. You know, 38 years ago today, my wife Lynn and I became parents for the first time. 
We have three children, and we now have five grandchildren, and all of those babies have changed our lives. But even more significant than the transition to parenthood and grandparenthood for us, Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, has made his way into our lives, so much so that you can never really know me unless you know him. And knowing him, you then begin to understand me. Are you the one? We each have to answer that question for ourselves about Jesus, just as John the Baptist did long ago. And the evidence is not always compelling. But by faith, we can reach towards the one who has come to save us and let go of our precarious hold on things we grasp with desperation, hoping they'll save us, and we can allow ourselves to be conquered by that second mountain. Live a life of significance and not just success. And when we do, we will find absolutely without doubt that this is the one who can save us all. Thanks be to God. Amen.